Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Our lungs play a critical role in our body as they help us breathe and deliver oxygen to our cells. However, respiratory issues can arise, making it difficult for us to breathe and function. Helping the world to breathe, pulmonary medicine, tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to another episode of On Call with the Prairie Doc, medical information based on science, built on trust. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hullinger, your Prairie Doc host. Tonight we will be discussing pulmonary medicine. Thank you for joining us. In the studio this evening on the campus of South Dakota State University in Brookings is Dr. Michael Pietala from Yankton Medical Clinic and Dr. Sven Senny from Prairie Lakes Healthcare System in Watertown, South Dakota. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being here. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do down in Yankton. Sure. I've been on here a few times, so people probably know a lot about <laughs> me. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician, sleep medicine, internal medicine at the Yankton Medical Clinic, um, professor at the University of South Dakota, um, work with Sacred Heart Hospital in Yankton as well, and take care of patients with breathing problems, mm -hmm. sleeping problems, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, great. It's been, thank you for coming down. Your first time in yes. the studio. Yes. You've joined us remotely before. Um, how long have you been in Watertown? Tell us about your path there a little bit. Sure, I've been in Watertown about five years. Yeah. Uh, I was born and raised in Vermilion and uh, um, got out of the Midwest for a little bit to seek my medical degree, then returned to uh, University of Nebraska Medical Center for mm -hmm. uh, internal medicine uh, residency, followed by pulmonary and critical care uh, fellowship uh, with a chief year in between there to, mm -hmm. to have a kid. And uh, mm -hmm. now we're up here having fun in Watertown. Yeah, great. Well, it's great to have both of you here. Thanks so much. As we begin our discussion this evening, we invite our audience to submit your medical questions about pulmonary issues. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. All questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for our newest Prairie Doc publication. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information if you would like to be entered for the prize. So I see we've got some questions rolling in. We'll see where this takes us. Um, let's take our first, we, get, we had an email viewer um, ask, are you aware of patients who have had COVID and then developed asthma? So I guess, you know, we, COVID's still around. We're seeing it as a smattering, probably less severe disease than, of course, those first couple of years. But talk to us a little bit about after COVID lung complications, maybe asthma being one of those, but not the only one. What have you seen, Sven? Sure, so absolutely, I've, I've seen a lot of people with asthma-like symptoms after mm -hmm. COVID. Um, the way I, I, I think about it and kind of describe it is lungs get twitchy. Um, there's a lot of inflammation mm -hmm. associated with COVID and that inflammation causes our lungs to become more responsive and reactive to things in the environment. Um, so uh, it's something I, I, I see quite a bit, uh, to be honest with you. Um, whether it was there 
preceding COVID and only mild and now is mm. moderate are questions that I ask myself, or is this just something that's caused only because of COVID? But uh, certainly uh, a lot of people with a lot of lingering elevated respiratory symptom burden after COVID is, is uh, very well described. Sure. And is it more common in people who were more severely ill with COVID, or have you seen people who had mild cases of COVID go sure. on to develop respiratory disease? So anecdotally, kind of interestingly, you know, expecting that my patients with asthma and COPD would have more severe COVID, sure. actually sort of experienced in, uh, that sometimes patients naive to lung disease had worse COVID yeah. with the original variant or the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. Omicron seems less severe, but what we're seeing is, you know, sort of has Sven described, a bronchiolitis, an inflammation sure. of the small airways that mimics asthma. Um, asthma is not something you typically develop later in life, but it mimics asthma, and mm -hmm. it does that with a lot of viruses. You know, mm -hmm. RSV, which we're seeing an uptick in at least diagnoses of, you know, influenza, any virus can cause an asthma-like condition where sure. your lungs are twitchy, as Sven says. And so certainly, um, you know, I'm not downplaying COVID's role in it, but I'm not certain it's just unique to COVID. But yeah, if you have some persistent symptoms, talk to your your primary care provider, see a pulmonologist, there are options for treatment right. um, that can be beneficial. Sure. And so I assume a patient that came in post-infectious like that, at some point you do pulmonary function testing mm -hmm. to get the diagnosis correct and correct. then offer treatment based on that. Correct. That, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. You know, um, symptoms and or uh, pulmonary function testing mm -hmm. um, kind of go into it. The first visit with me is oftentimes very symptom based as I don't mm -hmm. have a lot of data to shoot, shoot with at that point in time. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, very good. We'll move on to another question, another email question. What is pulmonary fibrosis? This person had a sister diagnosed with it. Yeah, so interstitial out, lung disease, um, which is a condition that affects the sort of the building block of the lung, not the, not the breathing part of the lung necessarily. It can come in a lot of varieties, and one of them is something called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, mm -hmm. which is what most of us refer to as pulmonary fibrosis because that version of it, which is uncommon and, and quite rare, is, mm -hmm. is progressive and um, oftentimes fatal. Um, there are some new treatments mm -hmm. that can slow the progression of it, but pulmonary fibrosis is a, a disease where the lungs harden, um, for lack of a better word, and the volume, the capacity of your lungs to fill with air is reduced. So different than asthma or COPD, which is a disease of getting right. air out, you can't get enough air in and oxygen levels drop. And again, if it is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, that condition is a a life-threatening illness. Um, but there's a lot of other pulmonary fibrosis that isn't mm. idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And by far, I see much more cases that are secondary to mm. some other illness, not idiopathic, sure. which means unexplainable, um, but that are secondary to something else. So just because your doctor or someone might say you have pulmonary fibrosis mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what are some other causes of pulmonary fibrosis, does it mean a lot of lab testing, biopsy help? How do we so, sort that out? So we see a lot of interstitial lung disease associated with other connective tissue diseases, mm -hmm. rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, other things mm -hmm. like that. Um, in this neck of the woods, we see a fair amount of fibrotic or interstitial lung disease or related to uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis mm -hmm. or exposures and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, we try to do our best uh, to not biopsy uh, the lung as it's, mm -hmm. it's high risk. And oftentimes, unless you have some fairly specialized equipment, we don't get very much of a meaningful sample. Sure. Um, 
Um, so it's a lot of blood work and, mm -hmm. and um, pulmonary fibrosis uh, that's not idiopathic sometimes takes a little bit of time for it to declare itself in sure. terms of why is this here. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people with underlying connective tissue diseases have abnormal CT scans, mm -hmm. rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, uh, but it doesn't mean you have interstitial lung disease, it's just some, some scarring. Sure. And I meet a lot of farmers who have a lot of miles on their lungs and have some scarring and uh, that's very different from idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Right. So it's worth telling patients, hey, don't go Googling this right now. You're going to see stuff that scares you. I don't think you have the idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. You may have some scarring, mm -hmm. but we're going to watch you and figure things out. I want to speak to that yeah, just good. briefly. We do so many scans now. Right. I mean, CT scanning mm -hmm. used to be a limited procedure, and now everyone seems like they've had a scan at some point and in their life. And they're so much more sensitive and than they yes, were 20, they 20 years ago, right? Yeah. That they never would have seen right. before. And mm -hmm. so the vast majority of patients that I see who've had a CT scan for whatever reason and they see pulmonary fibrosis, they're either farmers or farmers' wives mm -hmm. or construction workers or contractors or sure. someone who's been exposed to a lot of dust and particulate matter and they don't have this you know, really severe form of mm -hmm. life-threatening idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So mm -hmm. it's just something I want to caution people. You know, If you're mm -hmm. in your 80s and you have a scan, you're going to have some abnormalities. Right. right. Our yeah. ability to peer inside your body with technology has outpaced our ability to explain what we see all the time. Correct. Yeah, so. I think that's, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. And most of our patients are able to access the full radiology mm -hmm. report, which is great, but it, these are hard things to interpret, you know? Yeah. People with a lot of training sometimes struggle to yeah. make sense of all that stuff. To, to expect the patient themselves to do it is a lot to ask. Yes, seeing pulmonary fibrosis on a, on a radiology report that came to your phone before your, pa you know, your yeah. doctor can call you and, and Googling that it does result in quite a bit of anxiety right. for people. Right, Talk to your doctor. Lots of questions coming in. Let's keep at it. So from Facebook, my asthma seems to be flaring up. How can I better manage it? So I guess let's just talk about asthma in general, very common disease that we see. Um, how do we treat it? And if someone's, let's say they're on something, but they're still having a lot of symptoms, what should they do next, Mike? So asthma is, again, a diagnosis that's made commonly. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. accurate, sometimes it's not. Right. It's based on history. There's not a specific test that tells us you do or don't have asthma. It's oftentimes related to allergies or certain exposures or triggers. And so controlling those is very important. Mm -hmm. If, despite controlling those, you have symptoms, inhaled steroids are the cornerstone of therapy because asthma is an inflammatory disease of the mm -hmm. lungs. And then in addition to that, there are long-acting beta agonists. So depending on what you're on, if your asthma is not mm -hmm. well controlled, then we can't explain that it's it's not because you're exposed to sure. you know, last year the smoke and right. the really poor air quality in mm -hmm. our environment. Yeah, it's tough to avoid that mm -hmm. unless you stay indoors. Then it's about stepping up therapy mm -hmm. and when you're doing well, stepping down. And then um, there are new treatments mm -hmm. called monoclonal antibodies um, that can be invaluable in patients who have severe persistent asthma mm -hmm. that's you know acting up despite maximal inhaled or oral therapies. Um, and so it's just, I think, really important in that setting to see someone who specializes in managing right. asthma like a pulmonologist. Right, yeah, good. I mean, asthma, as common as it is, you know, my husband, we're not, we're not that old. He had really bad asthma as a kid, and I think it was albuterol and prednisone for him all yeah. growing up. Yeah. And now we have so many other yeah. treatment options that we usually can get people well-controlled, yes. right? And yeah, if I can't do it, then, then I'm sending them to you for those special medications considerations too. So, okay, good. Um, email question, I've had MS for 39 years, and after having COVID two years ago, I've had a hard time coughing. 
Mm. I'm concerned that if I ever catch a respiratory infection, I, it might become pneumonia. Okay, so um, what is cough? Why do we cough? Well, is it important? Yes. Let's talk about that. Chronic coughs are common <laughs> uh -huh. uh, in my practice. And, mm -hmm. and so yes, coughing is a reflexive uh, uh, process that is to protect your body. Mm -hmm. um, and it requires uh, functioning uh, sensory nerves and, and motor nerves and muscles in order mm -hmm. to effectively cough. And so if you're not able to mount a good cough, if you have neuromuscular weakness related to uh, multiple sclerosis or some other sort mm -hmm. of, of, of inflammatory disease or neuromuscular disease, it can impair one's cough. and it's in, in important to to get it out it, mm -hmm. it doesn't help you uh, when it's inside you so um, generally speaking you know when when someone comes to, uh, to see me for a chronic cough um, there there are three big things that I look at upper airway lower mm -hmm. airway and kind of aerodigestive or GI tract kind of stuff um, uh, but coughs are protective, they're important, mm -hmm. they should be tolerated somewhat, and an ineffective cough ought to have some attention. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, if someone came to me with uh, some sort of neuromuscular disease and, and an ineffective cough, there are just, uh, multiple things we can do uh, to, try to, uh, to try to make that cough more effective or assist it in different ways. Okay, good to know. Um, let's see, caller asks, what are the side effects of not taking deep breaths, especially after respiratory diseases. Um, so probably anyone who's been in the hospital has been given, you know, an incentive spirometer. We talk about taking deep breaths, or I talk to my, you know, if patient come in with like a rib injury and they're not breathing effectively, what what might happen, Mike? What do you tell patients about deep breathing? So um, it's important to breathe in the proper way, and yeah. one of the things about properly breathing is. As we take a breath in our diaphragm, which is the bellow of our lungs, the muscle that um, contracts into our abdomen, so our abdomen should push out as we breathe in, mm -hmm. and we're always trying to suck in and keep our bellies flat. Um, so good deep breathing, your belly's going to come out on your breath in and come mm -hmm. back in on your breath out. And anytime that you have any illness, whether it's a surgery, whether it's you know a respiratory condition. Um, like you mentioned, broken ribs. If you underventilate or don't take deep breaths, and you can develop what's called atelectasis mm -hmm. or collapse of portions of the mm -hmm. lung. And that's where the incentive spirometer is important in patients who are post-surgery, anesthesia, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But also in our patients at home who might have other conditions that prevent them from taking those deep breaths, mm -hmm. whether it's anything from abdominal obesity mm -hmm. to muscle, muscular weakness. And so um, proper breathing um, is an important part in through your mouth, and, or in through your nose and out through pursed lips and mm -hmm. allowing that lungs to really fill with air mm -hmm. um, is helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Um, we had a caller ask a little bit about how, how people breathe when they're having something like an anxiety or a panic attack. So this person um, experienced sort of having panic symptoms while walking up the stairs and then panicking more about being low on oxygen because mm -hmm. they feel short of breath. Why, why do we breathe so heavily when we're having that sort of panic attack and do we need to worry about getting enough oxygen if that's the case? If it's just a panic attack, generally no. You yeah. don't need to worry about getting enough oxygen. Your, your mm -hmm. oxygen is fine and, and you can run into consequences breathing too fast mm -hmm. and getting rid of too much of your exhaust gases, mm -hmm. uh, if you will, and that changes the chemistry of our blood, the pH of mm -hmm. our blood um, to cause other symptoms. Um, you know, breathing fast because you're short of breath and then slipping into an anxiety attack is, is something that, that patients that, that Mike and I see experience sure. quite a bit. and, and 
and um, it's about learning some behavioral techniques to try to help yourself in those situations. Um, things like pulmonary rehab uh, and, and visiting with uh, uh, respiratory therapists can, can help us learn some of these techniques. Um, and uh, and uh, But it's, it's very scary, mm -hmm. um, and understandably so. Uh, so it's hard to tease the true hypoxia or the shortness of breath versus the anxiety apart in people with sure. underlying lung diseases. Yeah, good. When people hear the words lung cancer, most would assume it was caused by smoking or secondhand smoke. That is not always the case, as some lung cancer patients get it randomly, like one Brookings woman. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower shares the story of Amy Peterson and her continued fight and incredible optimism. Amy Peterson is a former instructor at SDSU who has been living with lung cancer. She says it started with what felt like a cramp in her body before taking a trip to the hospital and getting a CAT scan. The doctor that read your scan thinks you might have lung cancer. I said, lung cancer? I looked at my husband, I said, what the heck? Never smoked a day in my life. Never worked around fertilizer or weed killers or anything like that. Where did it come from? Dr. Chris Sumi is an oncologist for Sanford Health and says while lung cancer is most common in smokers, around 10% of non-smokers can still get lung cancer. Lung cancer, unfortunately, is one of the cancers that can uh, grow quite a bit before people would get any symptoms. So it's quite common that we find lung cancer before there are symptoms. Peterson soon started chemotherapy in the hopes of beating lung cancer quickly. Those first few months were very um, frightening. That was 12 years ago, and she's been living with it ever since. Peterson started with chemo before switching to radiation therapy. While traveling down to Sioux Falls weekly, she was still teaching. Lost my hair twice, bald head twice. <laughs> And that was okay, I had a wig one time. I look back on those pictures of during that time and I was like, oh, I had a wig then. <laughs> I could tell the wig right away. Peterson says about five years after her diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer, she found out that cancer was gene related. She was given a new immunotherapy pill that targets the gene causing the cancer. And by finding that gene, we can give a medicine like a pill, hopefully with few side effects, that specifically targets that gene and then turns that gene off. And so you can get remarkable anti-cancer effects without causing a lot of side effects to the healthy tissue. Now, 12 years into her journey, Amy prays to hear the word stable as she continues to get scans every few months. She says she has always trusted her physicians and has always kept a positive attitude through it all. Whenever I go in for my scans, I tell the technicians, think positive thoughts, please. I always ask them to do that. And I just stay positive about the whole thing because otherwise nothing good comes of that, being negative. So lung cancer, treatment has changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years, 
in a good way, right? I mean, and I, good to mention that not all patients who have a lung cancer diagnosis were smokers. Yes. Big risk factor, but certain types of cancer are more more common in, in smokers. Not, yeah, um, but yeah, what have you seen? I mean. In, in your time as a pulmonologist, what have you seen change with lung cancer as far as things like life expectancy and treatment options? So as someone who's been at this now 20 plus years, yeah. um, back when I was first training, we treated lung cancer with a, a concoction or a, a cookbook for everyone. Yeah. It was the same thing. If you were diagnosed mm -hmm. with a non-small cell or a small cell lung cancer, which are different types of cell types, you got this regimen of chemotherapy just mm -hmm. like everybody else did. Mm -hmm. And with the development of um, genetic technology now, each tumor is different. Mm -hmm. And so your cancer is now your cancer, not like someone else's. And so we collect tissue and they do genetic testing and they look for certain markers that predict either you know, prognosis, how aggressive is your cancer, or less aggressive, and then also are you eligible for treatment with certain immunotherapies. Yeah. So there's chemotherapy, there's radiation, there's surgery, and there's immunotherapies. Mm -hmm. Now cancer specialists, oncologists, are much more trained in understanding of them, but, but essentially what it is is it's another treatment in addition oftentimes to chemo and radiation that can help to either slow the progression of your disease, mm -hmm. um, based upon the genetics of your tumor. Mm -hmm. um, and there's lots and lots of options being developed all the time out there. And again, um, you know, lung cancer was sort of universally a fatal diagnosis 20 years ago. And now you can live with it oftentimes like you do with high blood pressure or diabetes or other health conditions. Yeah, and it's really amazing. Especially if you're of advanced age and you're, mm -hmm. you know, so older women oftentimes can develop something called, not often, but can develop something called adenocarcinoma. Mm -hmm which if managed appropriately, you can live with and it, slow it down. and slow yeah. it down and die from old age. Yeah. So that's a big difference mm -hmm. in the 20 years I've been doing this. Yeah, yeah, all good news. Um, okay, we'll get back to some caller questions. We had a caller ask about, um, specifically for COPD, are inhalers or nebulizer treatments better? Um, and, and you know, yeah. how do they help in COPD? So there is, in my view, there's not a necessarily a better. There's something that can work better for an individual, but big studies have shown that, that uh, you know, generally the same amount of medicine is delivered to the lungs when using inhalers with proper technique or, in, or nebulizers. Mm -hmm. So what it really boils down to is proper uh, inhaler technique. And different inhalers, uh, there are multiple different kinds of inhalers, uh, styles, I guess I should mm -hmm. say, um, delivery devices, and some of them require more help than, than others. Um, in general, inhalers with COPD um, are very good at reducing symptom burdens, reducing risks of landing in hospitals, um, and sometimes, uh, you know, some, some claim to have some mortality benefits, but most fall short of actually mm -hmm. reaching that gold standard of saying, I can make you live longer, mm -hmm. you know? So inhalers help, uh, nebulizers help, mm -hmm. and to individual patients, some can help uh, more than others. Uh, the basics like quitting smoking and staying active are what makes you live longer, though. Mm -hmm. so. That would yeah, be my good. point, you know, inhalers are an important part of managing symptoms, mm -hmm. but what do we know improves survival? Stopping smoking, number one. Number 
number two, if you need oxygen, being on it, you know, being assessed in the proper fashion to determine. And it's too often that I see patients say, well, if I start oxygen, I'll get hooked on mm. it. And it's quite the opposite. Right. When you need it, the sooner you get started, the less likely you are to need it more. And mm. so there's only a few things that provide mortality benefit, stopping smoking, using oxygen when needed, and then being active, pulmonary rehab, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Some inhalers will claim yeah. a mortality benefit, but Oh, you're bringing back to Residency Journal Club right now. I love it. Okay. Um, we have an emailer who said, my brother was being treated for pneumonia for a while. Then the doctors stopped calling it pneumonia and started calling it an infiltrate. So explain what, what that means and are all infiltrates pneumonia? <laughs> so infiltrates are what you see on an x-ray or a CT scan. It okay. is a description, uh, a radiographic description mm -hmm. term that can represent infectious or non-infectious mm -hmm. etiologies or causes um, and, and can be called a pneumonia mm -hmm. in, in, some in, in the appropriate clinical context. Uh, but in the, in the dark room of a radiology reading area, in the absence of clinical uh, information about that patient, infiltrate is probably the most accurate term. And mm -hmm. someone like Mike or I or yourself might call it a pneumonia if we have an appropriate clinical mm -hmm. story. So um, it can be just a change in vernacular between patient, you know, one doctor and the other. Sure. Um, it could be them stepping back and saying, we're not sure this is an infectious pneumonia, pneumonia mm -hmm. so we're going to just call it an infiltrate mm -hmm. and, and watch it for a little bit. Sure. Yeah, another thing to keep in mind is um, pneumonia um, can improve clinically before the picture gets better. So mm -hmm. there's a lag mm -hmm. between when clinically you're right. improving and when your x-ray looks better. And so mm -hmm. one mistake that can be made by clinicians is that they repeat an x-ray too soon. And sure. so a patient had pneumonia, they're better, mm -hmm. and there's no reason in the short term to repeat an x-ray, and they do, and it doesn't look better. Right. That doesn't mean anything right. in, in most point. instances. You have to wait four to six weeks, mm -hmm. preferably at you know six, six weeks four. before repeating that x-ray, otherwise you can, you can misrepresent a clinical situation. Yeah, good. Um, Let's see, we have a, we have a couple questions on a, on a similar topic. Uh, this caller asked, I developed some wheezing when I breathe and was told it was um, from post-nasal drip. Who, what should I do and who should I see? Should I go see a pulmonologist if I'm thinking it's allergies post-nasal drip or, or what should we do about that? And Sven touched on this yeah. earlier. Um, you know, we think of three conditions when we think of cough, wheeze, that sort of thing. We think of upper airway, uh, syndrome, which is nasal mm -hmm. drip, drainage, allergies, sometimes post-nasal drip from mastication, eating, or things. Mm -hmm. We think of asthma-like conditions, um, mm -hmm. COPD, lung problems, and we think of aerodigestive stuff like heartburn and mm -hmm. reflux. And you know, as pulmonologists, we're skilled in treating all forms or causes of cough. Um, but so are your primary care providers in most mm -hmm. instances. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I would start with your regular doctor mm -hmm. and have them try the typical treatments. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the time we treat empirically for what we think it most likely mm -hmm. is, a two week trial of nasal steroids or a, mm -hmm. a heartburn medicine or an right. inhaler. And if they're better, I usually say treat for 12 weeks mm -hmm. and then reassess. Right. If you try all those things with your primary care and you're not better, mm -hmm. then maybe step in with the ENT if you think it's upper airway mm -hmm. or with the pulmonologist yeah, but go to your primary care provider. Yeah, first. you'll get you'll get care faster uh, if you right. do that. I, I honestly feel bad when patients wait 90 days for an appointment with me and and they haven't covered the basics mm -hmm. and they could have had their cough resolved at that point if right. if it were 
or at least have tried something that now you know that's not what and it I've is. I've got another idea. Another yep. great point for her. Not all that wheezes is asthma. Right. Wheeze, mm -hmm. wheeze is much more common with other illnesses. And, you know, so again, asthmatics wheeze, but mm -hmm. not all that wheezes is asthma. Yeah. Yeah. So on the same lines, we had another viewer say, what can I do for that chronic cough I have during allergy season, especially during season changes? So what's ideal treatment for a person just, like that? Just real basic stuff. Um, uh, nasal saline rinses. Mm -hmm. um, those are, are something that easy that you can do that doesn't oftentimes have a lot of side effect. Mm -hmm. It's not very well tolerated, but as a patient described it to me, it once as exercise, they hated it when they were doing it, but <laughs> felt better afterwards. So tolerate it for a little bit mm -hmm. and you will, uh, you will, you will get some relief. Uh, treating with over the counter antihistamines, um, doing what you can to modify the environment around you, getting mm -hmm. a better air filter, or cleaning your carpets, mm -hmm. uh, washing your, your sheets, um, your pillowcase more frequently, things like that are, are some good places to start that mm -hmm. you can do immediately. Yeah, good. Yeah, and combination treatment, you know, steroid nasal sprays yeah. plus mm -hmm. an antihistamine yep. plus nasal irrigation, um, antihistamine nasal sprays. You know, most allergy symptoms can be managed by lifestyle modifications mm -hmm. and over-the-counter right. um, interventions as opposed to needing to see a physician. Yeah, um, yeah. I always so. appreciate when people ask me, though, because not all antihistamines are the same. Some yeah. have a lot more side effects. So happy to talk about yeah, and, it. And watch decongestants. Yes. Um, those can, those Don't can do that cause forever. lots of trouble, right? Yeah, good. Um, let's see. We have a caller asked, is yawning excessively a sign of low oxygen? Is excessive yawning abnormal? Um, so yawning is a necessary reflex. Okay. Um, part of that deep breathing we talked mm -hmm. about, sighing respirations or yawning. Mm -hmm. um, but there is the potential that that yawn is being triggered by some microatelectasis or atelectasis in your lungs that might be a reflection of some weakness in your respiratory system but in most instances it's it's harmless okay most instances okay great um we had a caller ask how does a snore guard impact snoring versus a cpap machine so what, oh, let's, I guess let's right. talk a little bit about sleep apnea Love treatments it. and right. what's, what's, what's good and what's junk okay. out there. Snoring is a symptom. Yes. Not all snoring Ob is sleep apnea. Correct. Yes. Obstructive sleep apnea mm -hmm. is, is a condition, is a disease. So, mm -hmm. so when, you know, you, you can buy a snore guard over the counter that is not intended to treat, diagnose, or, or uh, uh, you know, manage any disease without a doctor's mm -hmm. uh, 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 approval. And, and sometimes they help to reduce the symptom of snoring. Um, but in order to understand whether you have sleep apnea or not, you need to have a sleep study of mm -hmm. some kind. There are home sleep studies, there are in-lab sleep studies, each have their own advantages and disadvantages based on your unique healthcare circumstances, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's where we start. As pulmonologists, I guess I'll speak for myself, it's always my preference to blow air in people with a CPAP machine mm -hmm. uh, when I can to fix their sleep apnea, mm -hmm. um, because it, it, it works, and, and I know it works uh, every day. We, get a, we can see feedback from that. Mm -hmm. um, Oral appliances are approved for the treatment of, of mild obstructive sleep apnea, um, and they should resolve the snoring associated with the obstructive sleep apnea um, if that was their intent and they were crafted by a dentist who knows what they're doing to do this. Mm -hmm. um, 
Oral appliances, in my opinion, need to be reevaluated frequently, at least occasionally, right? Mm -hmm. um, the CPAP machines, uh, if, if some of them literally give you a smiley face in the morning if you've worn it enough and it's a, it's effectively treated you. Right. Uh, my my my, I think the Achilles heel of the of the mouth guards are we don't know whether they continue to work for you. Um, mm -hmm. Sleep apnea is claimed by some uh, and, and and reasonably so to be a progressive disorder. We get mm -hmm. danglier and droopier as we get older. Mm -hmm. The soft tissues of our ears mm -hmm. uh, have been proven to get longer, as as have the soft tissues in our oropharynx, the back of our throat. Um, so periodic reevaluation of the efficacy of, of, a, of an oral appliance mm -hmm. is indicated, um, and there's a difference between snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. And in order to tell you that you snore and don't have sleep apnea, you need a sleep study. Yeah, I think that's the key point. Mm -hmm. Is there are some solutions to snoring out there, and, and keep in mind, snoring is pretty normal. You know, mm -hmm. after about age 45 or 50, most people have some component of snoring. If it's not associated with any other symptoms, no other comorbidities, mm -hmm. you know, high blood pressure, atrial fibrillation, other conditions, um, then maybe a mouth guard is all, all that you need. But if you have any of those other conditions, if you're at risk for sleep apnea. You know, sleep testing is so uniformly accessible anymore in the form of the right patient having mm -hmm. a home sleep test that it's probably best to go that avenue um, mm -hmm. first. And then other things you can do, lifestyle modifications, weight loss is helpful, don't mm -hmm. sleep on your back, avoid alcohol or sedatives in your bedtime. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would discuss it with your primary care or, or sleep mm -hmm. specialist before going towards an over-the-counter or dentist-designed um, mm -hmm. mandibular, mandibular advancement device or, or oral appliance or snore guard, mm -hmm. as they refer to it. Great. In 2022, nearly 12 million Americans were diagnosed with COPD. Inhalers help combat COPD and other respiratory problems. However, some people improperly use them. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer learns from a Brookings pharmacist how to properly use an inhaler. Emily Van Klompenberg is a pharmacist with Avera Health in Brookings, and she shares the importance of using an inhaler correctly. The inhaler is responsible for getting the medicine into our lungs, and there is quite a variety of inhalers. That's why she recommends a pharmacist teach patients how to properly use it. When picking up an inhaler from the pharmacy, they are right there, and they can go through the inhaler technique with it. And a lot of times, my personal favorite is actually helping the patient take their first dose of their inhaler when at the pharmacy, so you can assess the technique right there and then. Van Kloppenberg says she sees many mistakes when patients start using inhalers. The first one is sitting hunched over when administering the medicine. A lot of times they're very embarrassed about it, so instead of sitting upright with the lungs big and open, a lot of times they're hunched over and trying to breathe it in. And when you have compacted lungs, the medication doesn't get into our lungs as well when using inhaler. Instead, make sure your back is straight, your chin is lifted, and exhale before taking a puff. It's also important after the puff to hold the medicine in your lungs for a couple of seconds before exhaling to make sure it reaches. Again, sitting with the um, straight up with the lungs wide open, chin tilted up. We're gonna breathe out. And that's that dose for that one. The next big mistake Van Kloppenberg sees is patients not using the long-term medication frequently. I like to tell my patients with those maintenance medications, you're not taking it to improve your breathing right now or even tomorrow. It actually improves your breathing in three or four days from now. And that's why we need to stay steady with it. 
The last big mistake Van Kloppenberg sees is mistaking one type of inhaler with another. An example she uses is not every inhaler needs to be shaken before using, like a dry powder inhaler. There are certain inhalers that we cannot shake, otherwise you dump the medication out of the inhaler, so then you're not actually taking any medication into the lungs. For a dry powder inhaler, do not shake it, sit up straight, and lift your chin up for easy access to the lungs. Hold the inhaler like a hamburger, open the dose, and then bite around the opening. A dry powder inhaler doesn't have a propellant in it, so it is up to me as the patient with my inspiration to bring the medication into my lungs. So it is a quick breath in with this one. So I'm gonna breathe out around it because I don't wanna breathe into my inhaler, and then I'll quickly breathe out in the inhaler in. So. And while inhalers can be expensive because of new patents and types, Van Kloppenberg says inhalers help reduce the risk of hospitalizations and lung diseases. So if we're able to make sure uh, patients can use those maintenance inhalers regularly, then we can prevent these other sequelae and worsening a quality of life and hopefully keep their breathing as best as possible for as long as possible. Great information. Thank you, Emily. I always tell my patients, like, don't be too proud to bring in your inhaler and let, let someone teach you how to use it because it's, it's always surprising how easy they are to misuse for patients. Do you agree? It's critical. No, one of yeah. the most common reasons patient symptoms aren't well controlled isn't because their inhaler doesn't work, it's because it's not being used properly. Yeah. Another issue is sometimes they're too expensive and so patients either try to use them in one puff instead yeah. of two or four. Try to make so that's something last. to consider too is ask yeah. patients, can you afford your medicine? Yeah. Whatever. Real issue with these inhaled medications sometimes, unfortunately. Um, during that downtime, we were talking about lung cancer screening, which is a great topic. Um, we don't do as well as we should at catching all of our risky patients that would be eligible for lung cancer screening. So Sven, who is a good candidate for lung cancer screening and, yeah. and tell us what, what do we do? So um, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, or USPSTF, uh, a bunch of smart docs who don't necessarily have a horse in the race and render opinions regarding preventative services, um, uh, have recommended things like mammograms, colonoscopies, mm -hmm. other types of screening exams. And, and within the last uh, seven or so years, they've introduced some guidelines for lung cancer screening. Uh, they've recently been revised as well in order to include more people. Mm -hmm. So if you have smoked greater than 20 packs, years, that is a, a pack per day times years uh, you've smoked, so uh, a 20 pack your history is a pack a day for 20 years or a half pack a day for 40 years or two packs for, for 10 years, for example, and you're age 50 or older, you do not have any other malignancies and we expect you to live greater than five years and would accept cancer treatment had we found anything, you're eligible for a CT scan. Mm -hmm. These CT scans are, are, are very quick and easy. Um, they take a few minutes. I tell my patients you're going to sit longer in their waiting room than you are in the scan. 
scanner. Mm -hmm. uh, you wave through the, the the CT scanner, the donut of truth, as I kind of jokingly call it. Um, and and we were exposed to a very small amount of radiation. Mm -hmm. I can give a, uh, I think uh, last time I looked, I could do this to a pregnant lady like 400 times in a nine month <laughs> period without exposing them to too much radiation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we can see inside you and, and see if you have any risk for lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of the previous uh, uh, things that we've talked about and seen on the show tonight is talking about how deadly lung cancer mm -hmm. can be. The biggest determinant of how long you'll live is when we find it. Right. So if we can find stage one lung cancer uh, in an asymptomatic individual because we did a lung uh, uh, screening exam, mm -hmm. we can add decades or, or, or more to your life. Right. Um, these exams are, like I said, easy. Um, we do find some incidental findings though, and sometimes mm -hmm. they do prompt some anxiety and, and cause some other testing. So that's the downside. Right. Um, and you could also say on the other side, sometimes I find things that I wasn't looking for, but still sure. made a dramatic impact mm -hmm. on, on someone's uh, life uh, uh, with other incidental findings. Um, we're not doing as good as we need to in this country with, mm -hmm. with uh, the screening exams. The, the most recent data suggests that somewhere around 4 to 6%, 4.2 or to 5.8% of the people are uh, eligible people are getting a scan. Sure. So to frame this, you know, if you smoked between, you know, uh, 18 and 35 and you quit when your kids were getting old mm -hmm. enough to understand what you were doing and you wanted to change that, mm -hmm. um, uh, or, or let's make that 40 because the math works better, um, <laughs> and, and you've accumulated that number of packs years and mm -hmm. at your 50th birthday you've quit smoking within 15 years you are due those CT exams right. um, and I have found cancer in in what I consider to be young young patients in my world in their 50s um, and they go through a surgery and they're cured and they're back at work um, so that's something that that is uh, you know a, a high-impact statement for this show I would say is um, know who should be screened yeah. uh, we've talked about it talk to your doctor yeah, about it if you're you not worried mm -hmm. yep if it's you or your husband or your wife or someone you know mm -hmm. hey we should get this we're willing to undergo colonoscopies or many people are yeah. this is a lot less uh, less invasive yeah. and easier and potentially more high impact right. for some people and it's an annual screening. Yep. Yeah, so once a year, um, again, as he mentioned, age 50 to 80, mm -hmm. those who would uh, be amenable to treatment who have smoked at least 20 pack years and who have quit or are still smoking within 15 years. Mm -hmm. And it's um, in covered by most insurance and mm -hmm. Medicare. And in many instances, if not, it's pretty low price. Mm -hmm. Negotiate with your provider mm -hmm. about whether you can pay out of pocket for it at a reasonable mm -hmm. price. Um, and again, as, as he mentioned, woefully under screening patients. Yeah. And so I think it's something, as providers, we need to be more proactive right. about. It's, right. it's equivalent to mammography, yeah. which has been a big push. Yep. Um, and he mentioned the false positives. Mm -hmm. Well, mammograms have those too. Yeah. Right. And so it's just important to make sure your provider understands what the yeah. right next steps are. And if they're not sure, get, a, get them to one of us, yeah. a pulmonary specialist. Yeah, good. Um, okay, we'll get back to some caller questions here. Um, ooh, a caller asks, are there any new medications or treatments for pulmonary arterial hypertension? That's a tough about. condition. It um, is. Most pulmonary ar arterial hypertension or pulmonary hypertension is secondary to another cause, mm -hmm. and so the treatment in those cases is managing the other cause. Right. There is a, a condition known as primary pulmonary hypertension, which is a disease of the arteries that feed our lungs. So um, that condition is very serious and mm -hmm. oftentimes life-threatening. Um, and there are lots of options out there now as mm -hmm. far as treatment is concerned. Everything from the, uh, the nitric oxide um, synthesis 
synthetase inhibitors or, mm -hmm. or promoters um, like sildenafil, you know, mm -hmm. Viagra is the brand name, to um, prostacyclines and other mm -hmm. things. And so if you have primary pulmonary hypertension especially, or if you have pulmonary hypertension and you don't know the cause, get to one of us yeah. or a specialist in that area. Cardiologists do that too. Yeah. So there are lots of options out there. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, have, I can think of a patient or a couple patients that I have that I, when, when I met them four years ago, I would have been shocked to know that they'd still be here with their pulmonary hypertension, yeah. but they're doing great. Yeah. It's we've amazing. Got, yeah. We've got good oral and inhaled yeah. uh, options, so it's not all continuous uh, IV infusion. Right. Well, it's, really, so. it's really evolving. Yeah. Yeah. So again, if, if you were diagnosed, again, 10 years ago, you probably aren't around, but, yep. but now if you've you know, been told that there isn't a good option, get back in. Right, and see. things have changed, yeah. good. Um, another question, I was diagnosed with sarcoidosis many years ago and it has gone away. What are the chances of it returning? Fairly low uh, at this okay. point in time. Uh, sarcoidosis is an autoimmune uh, process uh, that in many people shows up mysteriously one day and, sh and disappears a few years later and, mm -hmm. and leaves a scar, leaves some, some imprints. Um, and once it's kind of burnt out, uh, guys like Mike and I watch you for a little bit and eventually say, it's good, you can stop coming and, and making you blow in the tube and, mm -hmm. and you've, you've kind of, you've finished the course. One of the yeah. things I was taught early in my pulmonary career is that the best pulmonologist is the one who treats sarcoid the least often. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's often just an incidental finding that's gonna run its course on its own and doesn't have any clinical consequences except uh, something on a scan mm -hmm. um, or an x-ray. And your best bet's just to sit tight. It's yeah. gonna almost certainly, what I say, burn itself out. Mm -hmm. um, you know. And now in situations where it is more advanced and affecting organs, especially outside the lungs or causing respiratory symptoms, then yeah, sure, treatment mm -hmm. um, is probably indicated in that setting. So, But most sarcoid, you just leave it be. Good news for that patient. Yeah. Okay, uh, we just have a couple minutes left. We'll try to hit a few quick ones. Can the doctors talk about um, why we're seeing RSV more in adults and what can we do to prevent it? Ah, <laughs> what we can do to prevent it is consider a vaccination. Yeah. So there's an RSV vaccination indicated for certain individuals 68 uh, years of age or older. If you're in my practice, you probably uh, qualify for that. If you have a chronic underlying lung disease, uh, heart disease, kidney disease, mm -hmm. I believe was all on there. Um, and so um, I, I think RSV is truthfully unlikely to kill uh, most adults. Mm -hmm. It's very likely to make you feel miserable for two awesome. to four weeks, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you can't laugh without... I've had patients hospitalized with yes. it, oh, yes. with it, asthma, COPD yep. especially. Yep. Yes, yeah. you, you'll see that, mm -hmm. um, and that is definitely a, a, an outcome that, that we see. Uh, but the shot has, has, has definitively shown that it dramatically reduces your risk of coming into the hospital or the ER, mitigates a lot of those symptoms. Why we're seeing it, I don't have the greatest reason for that at this point in time. Maybe Mike's uh, smarter than My me. My suspicion that. is we just didn't test our yeah. panels yeah. in the past. I think now adults that probably had it. In COVID yeah. more. Yeah. We, you know, we, we often have test these for everything panels at the same time. now, and mm -hmm. we find rhinoviruses and enteroviruses right. and RSV and parainfluenza. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time believing the viruses evolved to become more common in adults. I don't have science to back that, but yeah. I just think we have the testing to say, oh, your cold isn't just a cold yeah. this time; it's no, RSV. We actually know what it is but again, as he mentioned, it's miserable. Yeah. I mean, it's it's maybe not fatal. Think but about boy, that vaccine. You yeah. should. All right. The winner of our prize tonight is Sharon. Thank you, Sharon, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. 
On Call with the Prairie Doc has been a leading source of health education for 21 seasons. Join us as we continue to provide health information based on science built on trust. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc Library today. I've got this cough that just won't go away, my patient says, and I know this story all too well. Chronic cough, a cough that lasts more than two months, is a common ailment which in most cases is benign. But for the patient, it is both bothersome and worrisome. If your cough has lasted for less than two months, it may just be the residual effect of an upper respiratory infection. Dry cough after having one of many viruses can last for weeks and weeks, and the only cure is time. In patients who do have chronic cough, my first task is taking a good history. Are or were they a heavy smoker? If so, I will be more apt to rule out cancer and consider lung imaging. I will also be suspicious of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, which can be diagnosed by breathing tests. But many of these patients have no or little smoking history, so are at low risk for those things. Why are they coughing? I can think of a few common reasons. Mild asthma often causes a cough at nighttime, in the cold, or with activity. It isn't always accompanied by wheezing. Simple breathing tests in the office can help us diagnose asthma, and it can be greatly helped with inhaled medications. Post-nasal drip is extremely common, and we have probably all experienced it with a cold or allergies. For patients who have this chronically, the mucus produced in the nose drains down the throat, causing irritation to the upper airway and an annoying cough. If this seems likely, I suggest the patient tries a steroid nasal spray every day for a month or two, and if that resolves the cough, we have our answer. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, doesn't always cause classic heartburn. As the stomach acid creeps up the esophagus, especially when lying flat at night, it can get high enough to irritate the upper airway and cause coughing. As with post-nasal drip, sometimes we just try treating this ailment with an acid-reducing medication for a couple of months to see if this cures the cough. Finally, a commonly used type of medication can actually cause benign cough as a side effect. ACE inhibitors like lisinopril are excellent drugs for hypertension and heart disease, but around 5 to 10% of people will get a dry cough with it. If so, the cough resolves when we stop the med. Back to my patient. Tell me more about your cough, I say. I'm confident we can figure out what's going on, even if it takes a little time. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Pietala and Dr. Seni for volunteering their time to help us learn more about pulmonary medicine. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people.
legs are off. Mental health is an integral component of health and well-being and is crucial to personal, community, and socioeconomic development. Caring for your mental health, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hi, I'm Joni Holm. I'm the, on the board of directors of Healing Words. Well, there's so much to learn about our bodies. We take care of our cars in certain ways, we take care of uh, our houses and our lawns, but do we take care of ourselves? So by watching and learning, there's just so much to gain. I can think of so many examples with our guests talking about you know, how many times your heart beats a day and that if you don't take care of it, that, that machine is damaged and certainly our skin. We don't take care of our skin. So it's an education for everybody and there's so much to learn about our bodies. There's so much misinformation out there and there's so much advertising involved with medicine that it's hard to decipher what's true and what's not. And Rick believed in providing education without any bias. So he wanted the public to see the truth and be able to decipher on their own what was good for them and what wasn't. And an example of that is when a neighbor needed some information about uh, care for her father and not only Prairie Doc provides some background information, but it happened to be the physician her father was going to see. So. She learned about the illness. She learned about the physician by seeing him in our archives. Prairie Doc is a nonprofit. Our four Prairie Docs and our guest physicians all volunteer their time. People might think, well, why do I need to donate if it's a volunteer project? Well, there's a lot behind the scene. We've got the studio, we've got the time, we've got the cameras and the lights and the students that are involved in the production. It takes many, many hours for every show. And that's what your dollars as you donate go to. So we, we really need the support and we appreciate the support. For more information, go online, www.prairiedoc.org, and to donate, you can mail a check to our post office box at 752 Brookings, South Dakota, 57006, or you can go online. And there's on the top line, there's a little donate button, and we really would appreciate your donations because we couldn't do this, A, if you weren't watching and enjoying it, but B, if we didn't have the donations for the ongoing cost. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Out here, the day starts early and ends late. You don't love this land because it's easy. You love it because it's home. 
At Avera, we're built for rural healthcare. We're bringing quality, innovation, and advanced technology to your vibrant communities. Care when and where you need it. That's how Avera moves health forward. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Ophthalmology Limited, Avera Medical Group Brookings, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Monument Health, Dakota Dermatology, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yenton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, South Dakota American College of Physicians, Cool Beans Coffee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, and Swiftel Communications.